All right, kids, this one's for you. Listen up, all little kids here. How many of you, if you're honest with yourself now and with us, at some times are scared of the dark? Sometimes you're scared of the dark. Just shoot your hand. (laughs) I see some adults. I did say kids. That's just embarrassing, y'all. But the little kids, that's fine. All right, so some of you are scared of the dark. Now, kids, raise your hand if you think at times your parents are scared of the dark. Okay, all right. Son, you don't think I'm ever scared of the dark? Okay, all right, maybe not. All right. Well, someone once said, we can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. And I wonder how many of us are afraid of the light, afraid to have the darkness of our lives exposed. Just like fear can paralyze a soldier in a foxhole, fear can prevent people from experiencing true healing um, and growth and even significant relationships. But it's more than fear that keeps people in darkness. It's affection. It's love. Love keeps us in the darkness. But what do we love and why do we love it? May God awaken in us an affection that exceeds the affection we have for darkness. Namely, an affection for Christ. And with that affection for Christ, I hope that God produces in us an openness about our darkness, the dark areas of our lives, and that we gain courage to share our lives deeply with each other, a transparency that's rooted in the sovereign grace and freedom of God. A short review of God's love. God really loves the world. God really loves the world. John 3.16 is proof God's radical love is expressed in the giving of his infinitely valuable and unique son. His gift said, I love you. In Jesus Christ, God gave eternal life. No one who has received Jesus Christ by faith perishes, ever. They will never perish. Conversely, everyone who refuses to believe will be separated from God's love and joy forever. John 3.16 is essentially God's universal party invitation, a really good party invitation to everyone to come and enjoy Him and His Son forever. Creme brulee is only delicious for those who taste it. Taste it. You've got to taste and see that the Lord is good. The overwhelming message of the book of John is believe in Jesus and live. Live. John wrote words of life. And God is summoning you every Sunday to trust Christ over and above everything else. To value him most so that you may experience his love and greatest joy. We cannot forget that God is lovingly calling sinners through the gospel of his son. Well, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus continues in verses uh, 17 through 21. And what we find in this conversation is really, really good. It's good. You got to pay attention this morning. You're going to miss a radical blessing for you. So please, stay tuned. Get this. Jesus was sent to save not condemn. 
Jesus was sent to save, not condemn. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus Christ did not come to pistol whip everyone with truth, putting everybody in their place, all right? God is not like this old crotchety man on the porch snickering, you know, and wringing his hands at the mischievous neighborhood kids, right? With this salivating pit bull at his side until he unleashes it and says, go get him, boy. That's not the image we have. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus said in John 12, 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But Jesus also said he came to judge. John 9, 39, for judgment I came into this world. Is that a contradiction of scripture? What's Jesus talking about? No, it's not a contradiction. Uh, Three Little words from verse 17 help us. Saved through him. Saved through him. That's going to help us. The mention of being saved implies what? That there's something to be saved from. From. Namely, the condemnation of God that is already on the world. Verse 18. Without condemnation, salvation just simply makes no sense. Second of all, through him suggests that the only way to be saved and avoid condemnation is Jesus. The only possible way. He is the only option of escape. Belief in him is key. Well, what about those who don't believe? Condemnation. Condemnation. Jesus is the deciding factor. If some don't believe unto salvation, are they not condemned? Jesus is not neutral. He revealed the stark contrast between good and evil, right and wrong, belief and unbelief. So in a certain sense, Jesus did come to judge. The light of his salvation casts the shadow of condemnation. Verse 18 shows that an unbelieving world was already condemned. Jesus didn't come along to bring that condemnation. It was already there. It was already present. He came to bring life. So everyone was condemned already, so if he didn't come ever, then condemnation simply remains. Condemnation is on everyone. And the only way for salvation to be accomplished was if Jesus came, therefore Jesus was sent to save. That was the main reason of him coming. Wasn't Jesus clear about his mission? For God so loved that he gave. For God did not send to condemn, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God did not send his son to slap sinners across the face with his big, white, uh, shaming gloves, all right? But to grab them by the back of the shirt and rescue them. And this rescue plan, beautifully, beautiful truth of scripture was for the nations. Every nation He came to save the world. Long before Jesus arrived, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah and said this, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Those are not condemning words. Those are words of hope and life for the world. 
Now, we have good doctors here in Lancaster County, I think, a lot of, a lot of good uh, nurses and, and people in the medical profession. Do good doctors come to hospitals to rouse fear and anxiety in patients and in people by telling them you are sick and you are going to die? You know, is that, is that the purpose of a doctor? I don't think. My doctors usually aren't that way. Or do good doctors come to do whatever they possibly can to help people face the reality of sickness and to move ahead with a hopeful plan of healing and recovery? They don't ignore the problem. Never ignore the problem. State it clearly. But with the intent to move beyond the problem with a plan of healing and recovery. That's what good doctors do. Jesus came to save an awesome and magnificent truth. And a truth that only makes sense amidst condemnation. The beauty and goodness of the gospel is that Jesus didn't come to condemn but to save. Well, we do, however, need to face the reality of the division Christ brings when he saves. In verse 18 is where Jesus clearly delineates the complete freedom of his people from the condemnation of the world. There's this divide. Either or everyone is either saved through belief or condemned through unbelief. Everyone is either saved through belief or condemned By unbelief, verse 18 is helpful and to the point, straightforward. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, awesome, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is black and white. This is as easy as it comes. Some people believe in Christ and are not condemned ever, and some people don't believe and are condemned forever. And right from the beginning of history, God promised a Savior in Genesis 3.15. That's where the gospel shows up. There's a seed coming. He's going to crush the head of the the serpent. He's going to win victorious over Satan, sin, the grave, evil. So all throughout history, people either trusted that Savior or didn't trust that Savior. This is is not hard. It's very easy. There are two sides. You either trust the Savior or you don't trust the Savior. So let's first take those who do trust the Savior. If you believe, it means you trust Christ with your life and your entire heart. Amazing things are true for you this morning and forever. Amazing things. It will blow your mind what is true of you if you are a believer. I want you to just soak this up. You are not condemned. You will never ever be condemned. Paul was emphatic about this in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's wrath is no longer on you. His, he's not angry with you anymore. Eternal life is yours because Jesus bought it for you. God delights in you. He takes pleasure in you. He rejoices over you, quiets you by his love, rejoices over you with shouts of joy. God is glad that he saved you. He's not looking back wishing that he didn't, that he made a mistake somehow. He is glad to work good in your life, even through suffering. 
God counts you 100% righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you and counted as yours through faith. You are legally justified under the law. Your guilt is gone, your shame is gone, your blame is gone. You can live free of anxiety because God will protect you. He has your back. He is your valuable possession. You are free and liberated from the slave market of sin. Your father loves you so much and will never reject you, will never turn his back on you. You are secure in your new name and identity and family. You have been legally adopted, made an heir, and God cherishes you as his precious child. You are really alive, forever alive. Jesus said in John 5, 24, that those who believe have passed from death to life. You are truly alive. Believers, can we just be confident in this? We are not condemned by God. We are abundantly blessed with radical blessings. This is what, this truth of the gospel is what allows you to live free. To live free. The gospel is the most liberating message in the universe, but some prisoners remain in the cell of darkness. Secondly, let's look at those who don't believe. Even the most well-intentioned, nice, amiable, agreeable, and warm-hearted person is condemned by God if they don't believe in Christ. Look at the rest of verse 18. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This condemnation is real and this condemnation is now. What condemns a person before God? It isn't a shameful past. It's not moral failure. It's simply unbelief. Unbelief. Perpetual unbelief will not be forgiven by God. Unbelief is pure arrogance because it looks at the matchless value of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and says, I don't need Him and I don't desire Him. Just get away from me because I can do this on my own. Is anything more arrogant than rejecting in unbelief God's Son, Jesus Christ? It is the epitome of arrogance. Mark wrote that whoever does not believe will be condemned. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul links this uh, condemnation with those who have pleasure in unrighteousness. If your life is defined by pure pleasure in worldly things, you are in big trouble. In his first pastoral epistle, John says unbelief is equivalent to calling God a liar. Imagine wagging your finger in God's face saying, you deceitful liar. Now that's not a good spot to be. Unbelief condemns a person. Not believing or trusting in the name of Jesus Christ is extremely serious because according to Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. His name is precious. His name is powerful. He is Jesus the Savior. He is Christ, God's anointed one. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is Yahweh. 
Paul wrote in Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To reject the precious name of Jesus is to reject God. Now, sometimes Christina will ask me to pick up some things either on the way home or whatever. And I might only be away for a couple minutes. And I will get back and drive into the driveway and go into the house and recognize, I didn't get what you asked, did I? I mean, within minutes, I can forget completely what she asked me to do. I might have just been on the phone. And I'm like, got it. Bread. Boom. Boom. There's Weiss. I mean, I'm not even close. It is the craziest thing. I am awesome at forgetting things. I mean, sometimes really important things. Gone. We're sick. I'm sick. All right. So we have an amazing ability to hear the gospel and to forget. Quickly forget. Slipping back into thinking that God's approval is somehow earned by how good we are and what we do. We're there, right back there. Well, I got the. Well, I didn't. And we wrestle with it right back, slipping into old patterns. When the gospel, we just heard the gospel. It's crazy. And that's why we must always preach the gospel to ourselves and we must preach the gospel to others. Grace, 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 never relenting. If you believe, that means you know the gospel, you assent to the gospel, you trust in the gospel, and you enjoy the gospel, then you are not condemned. End of story. What more do you want to hear from God? You are not condemned. But if you don't believe, if it's no Jesus for you, or if it's Jesus plus all this other stuff and something else, then you're already condemned. Perhaps some of you have done jury duty before and you might have come in to, uh, to, to give a verdict or a judgment. And so the jury studies the evidence and they arrive at a certain judgment. And verse 19 reads, and this is the judgment, or in some translations, the verdict. Judgment comes, the verdict comes through loving anything more than the light. If you love anything more than the light, that is the judgment. That is the deciding factor. That's really the point here. The word judgment at first, when I had read it, it confusing to me, and then I read the alternate translation, verdict, and it, so it started to become a little bit more clear, and this is the verdict. This is the deciding factor. When the light came, people said, I'd rather stay in the darkness. That light is just too bright for me. Now, why would anyone want to stay in the darkness? It doesn't really make sense. Well, Jesus gave the answer. People love the darkness rather than the light. They love darkness. They loved it. And light was completely undesirable. And that was the deciding factor of condemnation. And since Jesus is the light of the world, it would be accurate to say people love the darkness rather than Christ. During the winter uh, in Alaska, they have about 20 hours of darkness a day. Uh, in some parts of northern Alaska, like Barrow, it is dark, completely dark, for two months. Two months. Many Alaskans suffer from what they call seasonal affective disorder or depression dependent on the weather. 
Many get lethargic and apathetic. They desire sleep more. They feel unhappy and heavy and uh, lose mental clarity. Interestingly enough, Alaska's suicide rate is the highest in the United States, and it's double the national average. Darkness flat out affects you. (laughs) It is potent, and so does spiritual darkness. Why would anyone want to remain in the misery of spiritual darkness? Jesus gave the answer in verse 19. People love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Because their deeds were evil. People love to live in the shadows because they do things they shouldn't do. People love the darkness. Then verse 20 says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his deeds should be exposed. All right, these are not well in, uh, well-intentioned people desiring, I just want to come into the light, but I can't seem to come into the light. They hate the light, and they love darkness. Why? Because they know that light exposes, light uncovers the shame of their actions. They simply want to hide. If anyone is not living for Christ, the last thing they want is this big, brilliant shining light of truth directed right on their lives, getting in all the little nooks and crannies of darkness and revealing their moral guilt and failure before God. That makes them feel worse. Now, I think Job, as an illustration here, Job hits a home run in Job 24, 13 through 16. Listen to these words of what happens with this darkness struggle. There are those who rebel against the light who are not acquainted with its ways and do not stay in its paths. The murderer rises before it is light, that he may kill the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, no eye will see me, and he veils his face. In the dark, they dig through houses. By day, they shut themselves up. They do not know the light. I'm not sure that ever dawned on me that that was there. That's just an amazing parallel. This is how sin is. We hide in dark corners, clutching our sin. We creep around under the cover of darkness, trying to hide what we have done, suppressing the truth, motivated by a hatred of the exposing light. The word exposed in verse 20 is not just to have the wicked uh, works uncovered, all right? It's to also have the shame of the wicked works uncovered. The verdict is in, the judgment is this, we are condemned by loving anything more than Jesus Christ. To believe in Christ is to love him most. And condemnation comes through staying in the darkness and hiding from the light because of a love affair with darkness. We love it. So much. Now, this, this, this point is so interesting to me in this application because of how people hear the central message of Christianity. I don't think it should be washed out and misunderstood. God is not calling and asking for unbelievers to clean up their act and to, to put their lives in order, and then you'll be ready. 
God is simply calling unbelievers to humble themselves, allowing the gospel to shine on everything in them, exposing everything, to come to the light and to trust Christ alone for healing. It's not get it right first and then come. It's come and allow him to work in the darkest areas of your life to make you like Jesus. It's grace at work. It's grace at work. And so this also applies not only to unbelievers, but also to Christians. We have dark areas in our lives. And sometimes we like to hide too. And God is calling us to continually come into the light, come into the light, to open up the dark areas of our lives to the light rays, the powerful, warming, gracious light rays of the gospel. Jesus must shine everywhere in us, and and being humble and open about the dark areas of our lives helps that to happen. We want the marvelous light. It is marvelous. And we thrive in the marvelous light. We thrive, we prosper, we grow, we develop, we become more like Jesus. Can we be honest? We all have dark areas of our lives. What are we trying to fool? Who who are we trying to fool? Break the facade because every single one of us sitting in here today can say, I have dark areas. I have things I'm ashamed of. I have things I'm scared of. I have mess going on in me that if anybody else knew, I'd lose all my friends. I'd lose this pastorate. None of you would want to see the dark areas of my life unless we're a grace-based church. Then you open up those dark areas and you say, I know exactly what you're going through because I got this darkness too. I've been wrestling with it all week. We'll walk through this together. We will get through this because the more painful it is to open up these dark areas, God will enter right into there with his grace and he will clean us up. He will help us get through. We have nothing to fear because why? Because we're not condemned. We need to be honest. The gospel gives us the courage and determination to face every single one of the dark areas of our lives. To go right there and say, oh, I'm going there. I'm going to open that up because I need healing. Remember, everyone who believes is not condemned. You have nothing to prove, so open your life up. Open it up, all right? But is it possible that you love your pride and your self-image more than you love the light? Let's run a quick diagnostic on your heart, a couple questions to get your mind thinking in this, and I think all of us need to run through this. Have you admitted to yourself the areas where you're playing around in the darkness? Or do you try to justify them away somehow? Are you in the regular habit of confessing these dark areas to God? Or do you just never bring them up? Are you ready and willing to have the light of Scripture shine in the darkest areas of your life? Or are you avoiding the Bible? Avoiding the truth, kind of because it gets in there or you don't, makes you feel uncomfortable. How do you respond to others when they confront you about your dark areas? Or have you been so spiritually disconnected from others that open rebuke just isn't part of your life? No one feels close enough to you spiritually to actually help you see some of the areas where you're misstepping. Because what do we do? We can tend to keep people at a distance. Oh, don't get that close. 
don't know me that much. Are you open about your struggles? Or do you try to hide them somehow? Who are you open with on a regular basis about your evil desires and what you're really wrestling with? Who knows? Last one. Have you ever invited a mature and godly person, someone who just loves Jesus, loves grace, and they're mature in that? Have you ever invited someone like that to confront the dark areas of your life with you? Or do you typically run from those type of mature people? Because, hey, maybe we all think, they got it together. I'm not where they are, so I'm not telling them. When I think if you got a little closer, you'd probably recognize they're walking with a limp. They're wounded. And they're relying on grace. You see, we might believe that it's actually easier to hide from others But the truth is, it's more difficult. It's much more difficult. It suppresses personal growth and promotes cowardice and promotes weakness. It takes courage to be open and honest with God and others about where you are really spiritually. But the rewards of doing that, the rewards of having that courage and pressing into the darkness are immeasurable. They are so massive and huge, you just can't get them unless you come openly. So what I'm asking, and I think God is asking you to do, will you commit to taking small steps, just small baby steps to move forward to invite people into your world and to support you and help you and pray for you in these areas? Will you confess to God and begin to open up to others? Someone you trust now. Don't just let me have that mic, Jonathan. I have some things to lay out. You might want to reconsider that, but uh, find some trusted people. Take small steps because when we love our pride and self-image the most, we hide. When we love Christ and grace the most, we come into the light. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And I just wonder, like, can we take the Bible seriously that that actually means something? That there is powerful healing for you if you would confess your sin to someone else and walk with them in God's grace to work through it and pray. And is it possible that you're not receiving healing because you aren't confronting your darkness and being honest and, and confessing and praying? Is it possible that healing could quickly come for you in certain areas of life if you would just open yourself up to others? One of the reasons Christina and I Um, enjoy a fulfilling marriage, and I can say that, a fulfilling marriage is because by God's grace, we have fostered an atmosphere of confessing sin to each other regularly and working through it together. That's why. It's not perfection that you see in the Shirk household, I can tell you that, all right? We have opened our lives to each other, and it looks really, really ugly at times. But God helps us to work through it together. Imagine if there was no together. Like, what would we be? That's just... So imagine living underground for a year, and then finally you emerge to finally see the light and color again. Can words possibly describe what that would be like? So when we enjoy the light more than the fleeting pleasure of sin, two things happen. Our greatest desire for joy and pleasure is satisfied, and God's sovereign grace is glorified. We are satisfied. God is glorified. God's sovereign grace shines through our enjoyment of the light. 
That is the point of our lives and enjoyment of grace because God's sovereignty can, can shine. Verse 21 says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Doing what is true is living in obedience to God. Not trusting in what you do, trusting in what Jesus has done. When you live the truth, God's sovereign grace is magnified in you and you are most gratified in his sovereign grace. So do you want to live the truth? Then come to the light and dwell there. Set up shop in the light. Live in the light. Build a house in the light. Come to Jesus. Allow the light of truth to completely penetrate every area of your life. As I bring it in for a close, I want you to see one massive truth from verse 21 and then how it plays out in the lives of believers. First, the massive truth. We come into the light because God works his sovereign grace in us. We come into the light because God works his sovereign grace in us. Another way to translate verse 21 is like this, that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been wrought in God or worked in God as without God, it doesn't happen. It doesn't get worked out. God works his grace in us so that we live the truth and come into the light. We don't come on our own. He brings us by his grace. God is sovereign over our salvation and all of the Christian life. If we have come to the light, we came by his grace alone. If we live differently than the world, it's not because we're better. It's because we live by grace alone. Paul talked about this in Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In Colossians 1.29 he wrote, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So God works in us so that we work. Here's how God's sovereign grace plays out practically. Verse 21 is humbling, right? Isn't it? No credit goes to the believer. Believers are not esteemed. God is esteemed. Nothing inherent in the Christian is boastworthy. Believers are not better people, but they are different people because they have come to the light and have been transformed by grace. And this is really, really important to understand. God's sovereign grace shatters Christian arrogance. And by Christian arrogance, I mean that feeling, and I know we've been there. I've been there a lot. That feeling of moral superiority and self-righteousness when we get we get that feeling when we compare ourselves to unbelievers. It's the good feeling we get about ourselves because we don't do what they do or we do all the good things they don't do. And that becomes our emphasis instead of God's sovereign grace. When we trust in our own self-righteousness or goodness, that is unbelief. That is unbelief. There is no room for us to boast in ourselves. That's practical atheism. Christians are not inherently better people. Let me say that again so we don't miss it. Christians are not inherently better people. You can't miss that. It's going to impact everything. Believers and unbelievers share something huge in common. We both are in desperate need of God's grace. Yet there is a massive difference as well. Believers are justified by grace through faith. Unbelievers are not. Believers are beloved friends and children of God. Unbelievers are enemies of God. What makes all the difference? Grace, grace, grace. 
Jerusalem, our church cannot love people. We will be a very unloving church. We cannot love people and see lives changed if we think we're better somehow. Uh, Christian arrogance kills powerful ministry. We're not better. But if people see in us a humble and desperate reliance upon God's sovereign grace and an honesty and openness about our need for God, then I know, I know we will impact people's lives for Christ. We will see lives change for His glory. The sole aim of our lives should be to put the sovereign grace of God on display. The most powerful and courageous and persevering people in life are the ones who live in the balance of John 15, 4 and Philippians 4.13. Track this balance. Apart from Christ, they can do nothing. Apart from Christ, they can do nothing. Yet, they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. Believers have nothing to prove to anyone because Christ has proved all there is to prove for them. It is such a tragedy when men and women fear the light. Fear the light. Because it is only the light in the light that we can truly live. I believe Switchfoot, the band Switchfoot, I believe their song is right. We were meant to live for so much more. Come to the light and live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your very clear word uh, for giving us incredible hope in the gospel that we can stand here today and emphatically declare, because of the grace of God and because of the gift of faith, I am not condemned. Can it get any better, God? I mean, you've given us everything in your son, Jesus. And I pray for the person here who might have sat through this message and heard a haunting reality that they are condemned because they don't have the belief that John was talking about. I don't know who that might be, God. But I pray that your Holy Spirit will comfort them now by drawing them to the gospel where they can then say, along with all of us bruised and broken believers, I am not condemned. God, I pray for your grace to fall on this church, to fall on this community, that we can be people totally dependent upon you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.